This is David Wilcox. You're listening to The Soul of Life. You can make world-class bread with a bowl and a spoon. Truly, that's all you need. Today on The Soul of Life, I speak with Brian Lagerstrom, a professional chef and baker who just recently left the world of restaurants and is making a living producing YouTube videos of bread, sourdough, and pizza. Really serious, awesome pizza. And dinner recipes. There's already 16 good videos on cinnamon rolls made by people trying really, really hard to make a great video. So how do you make the 17th video stand out? Brian shares about the camaraderie and caveats of restaurant chefing and what drew him to this demanding work in the kitchen. I don't have anything profound to say about Anthony Bourdain, but he inspired me for sure. Even though the book explicitly says, do not do that, like, don't become a chef, basically. I asked Brian about my $26 bag of heirloom flour, and he opines about the mythology that can surround poetic claims of vintage starter. So if you have some heirloom sourdough starter from your grandma in Poland from World War II, uh, awesome story, keeping that lineage of this thing alive. But if you were to feed that commodity flour from the United States two times, you've completely changed the profile because you don't have the European flour. You're not in Poland. You're not in Warsaw. You know. We share about our common appreciation for Chef John of Food Wishes, one of the first blockbuster YouTube chef creators. I was just like, dude, this I cannot stand these videos. I hate them so much because of the way he talks. But like, first of all, he really knows what he's talking about. I can fully endorse Chef John's recipes. And now I have a real soft spot in my heart for Chef John, and I really appreciate what he does. We talk about sourdough. You have to have water in the bread for it to have the aesthetics of true artisan bread. And that just has to do with the way the starches gelatinize when it's cooking. And it makes a huge difference for a country loaf with, you know, 5 to 10% of whole grain involved in a sourdough. And Brian implores us to use our hands with the dough and work it. Other than people figuring out how to get their starter to do what it wants, that's the biggest hurdle. The second would be people getting their hands on the dough. Most people have no idea what to do with the dough that is like above 66% hydration. It just is like an, an enigma to them. Welcome to the Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller, and this is Sourdough with Brian Lagerstrom. He's incredibly successful by just talking shit about people's fried rice. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. Have you ever been in a position where you know that you or your family member really needs emotional support or marriage enrichment, but you find out how expensive it is to get access to high-quality, out-of-network professionals? Well, I've created the Soul of Life community just for this. At community.souloflifeshow.com, you can join for free and be part of a network of caring and supportive people having conversations that can bring healing to your soul. It's there that you'll find access to psychoeducational courses to deal with stress, anxiety, and relationship conflict. For example, right now I'm offering a seven-week immersive course for couples called Mindful Marriage that walks people through a mindfulness-based stress reduction curriculum I designed that really gives couples in conflict a map towards stability, trust, and deeper intimacy. 
Just go to community.souloflifeshow.com. Check out the courses and join for free to be part of the Soul of Life community of learners and soul seekers. I'm here today with Brian Lagerstrom. He shows people how to make food on YouTube, but he also says he's a chef in the real world slash guy. I'm here today on The Soul of Life to get to the bottom of who Brian Lagerstrom really is and what is this mysterious real world he talks about. We're going to talk about all sorts of food things. I mean, that's what Brian really does. We're going to talk about pizza dough, bulls, kitchen basics, like what you should have in your kitchen. What is a tea towel, if you don't know what that is, um, proofing. What else are we going to talk about? Icorn ancient wheat, number 18, straight from the Bronze Age. Brian doesn't know that, but I'm going to talk to him about that. Really excited to have you, Brian Lagerstrom. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Keith. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks. Doing well. I, I have to thank you for your uh, really creative YouTube channel. I think it's uh, it's uh, I'm in the category of being one of your fans. I came across your uh, your website because I was just like banging my head against the wall. I, I, I knew that I could be doing better with sourdough. I had this dormant starter. I went through a phase of, this is pre-pandemic, you know, people started doing sourdough on the pandemic because they were killing themselves and like saved our lives. But um, as you know, sourdough is not for the faint of heart and a lot of steps. And I was missing a bunch of those steps. I think because I was working off of somebody else's YouTube video and they're just like, you know, if you don't have time for these steps, don't worry about it. If you don't want to handle the dough, just throw in the oven. And I, and I was getting bricks mm-hmm. out of the oven. So hopefully we can talk about what's wrong with my technique. Well, you, you know, so you, I'm curious about you, you and, and how you got started doing this. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for watching. That's awesome. I'm glad you found it. A lot of people found the channel uh, based on sourdough. Those were some of the first videos that did well for us. Um like most people last year, I found myself out of work temporarily. I was on furlough for 90 days, maybe like a hundred days of 2021 and, or no, 2020. And, uh, right off the bat within like the first week, bought a digital camera and started making YouTube videos. It was something that I had wanted to do for a long time. And now that I had like free time. It was something I wanted to just try and see how it went. And of course, like it's super embarrassing at first. The first like 50 videos you make are really terrible and rough, but there's a lot of supportive friends and family that watched every video. And then over time, you just grow an audience. Uh, that's kind of how it started though. I was, you know, chefing at the time and, or at least a, a version of chefing at the time and got laid off. So that was like the, the spark that started the whole thing. And in what part of the country do you live in? The Midwest. I'm in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. All right. So you're chefing. Like, what kind of? Can you well, talk me through? Like, what what did that look like? Busy restaurant, like lunch, like lunch customers, dinner customers, fancy restaurant. Yeah, most of my background as a chef is in fine dining. I did that in Chicago for a long time. Well, not a long time, five or six years, and then moved to St. Louis, kept doing fine dining, and eventually got kind of burnt out on that because it's really high pressure. And at the time, the restaurant I was working at here in St. Louis, it's not open anymore. They, the guy, the chef closed it actually because, um, you know, I think it was just was no fun for him to own it anymore. It was called Niche. And, um, the time I was working there, we were pushing to get a James Beard award. And luckily we did get a James Beard award, which is awesome, for, uh, for, you know, for him for outstanding chef or whatever. So, um, there, I guess it was best chef 
maybe his best chef Midwest is the award that he won. But, um, anyways, it is like high pressure and not fun, super, super long days. And so I transitioned into being a bread baker, helped open a bread bakery with a couple of friends and here in St. Louis. And then that became a restaurant. So I was the chef of that and, uh, it was open for lunch and dinner. It was casual food. It was like a cafe during the day with like a retail bread side, um, you know, sandwiches, salad, soups, and then like pizza, really serious, awesome pizza at night. It's called Union Loafers. For anybody who's listening to this, if you're ever in St. Louis, definitely go get that pizza because it's exceptional. And the bread too. I mean, in, in between the coasts, it's in my opinion, probably the best bread you could find. It's some of the best bread in America, period, whether it's on the coast or not. But um, Wow, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I'm, I'm a huge fan of that place. I don't work there anymore, but uh, yeah, I moved to uh, being a consultant chef for a food company for a few years. And that was where I got laid off from. I kind of mm. just, yeah, this is the day to day of like being a chef of a restaurant isn't the best. It's not super fun. And as you get older, you're just like, ah, um, you know, I, I would like to earn a little bit more money and have a little bit more free time. This is just not really mm-hmm. adding up anymore, you know? Yeah. It's rough on families, right? It's rough on your, your personal time. It's your, you're giving your best hours, your, your, your evening time with family hours away and, uh, you're, you're serving. It's the service business, right? It's always about somebody else. Yeah. Uh, and that part of it is actually fun and like the providing hospitality for people is something I've always been a fan of, or at least learned to be a huge fan of it over the years. Um, the thing that really drags you down in the end is just when you're, especially when you're in the management position is just being responsible for every little drama and problem that comes up. And you, you know, like your work day is dictated by the behaviors of other people. A lot of times like 20 year olds who don't know anything about how to behave. <laughs> and then you're all of a sudden like, okay, cool. I guess I'm going to go pick up the dishwasher from his house because he doesn't have a car anymore. Yeah. Because I have to have a dishwasher, otherwise I have to do my job and then the dishwasher's job. And any chef knows that that is literally just like a daily basis of just like triaging catastrophe. And it just it wears on you after a while. There's this uh, there's this scene in Anthony Bourdain's, of course, which could be the story that we're talking about, right? The sort of the burnout story of of chefs, very tragic and sad in his case, but amazing guy and amazing life and amazing story. And there's a scene in, in his book, Kitchen Confidential, where I think one of his, his bread guy um, was hung over for like two days. He was on a bender <laughs> and, you know, he gets this call like frantic from the guy. He's still like in, in no shape to show up at the restaurant, but the, the, the baker's calling him. He's like, you've got to feed the bitch. Because his sourdough was was going, you know, his huge, huge batch of sourdough for the whole bakery, and he's, you know, I don't know what if you ever use that term to refer to your <laughs> your mother, but people have done it. It's drama, isn't it? There's a lot of drama when you have to depend on other people and they've got stuff going on in their lives. And yeah, it's not after a while. It's just not very attractive anymore. So yeah, I switched uh, over to working for a bigger company as a consultant chef, and that was that was pretty fun. Um, really enjoyed working for that company. But now I'm self-employed, that I only have to really rely on me. So that's pretty awesome. Congrats! Thanks. You know, tell me a little bit about some of the things that you like to show people online. What what have you found? Uh, you've got a great production quality. Just want to give props to you and, and invite people to really watch and tune in. You've got some great playlists, which for people who don't really know YouTube, you know, you can just basically hit play and it will scroll through certain topics. Like, I don't know, you have some something about salads, something definitely on pizza, probably like lots of things on pizza. 
um, certainly sourdough, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, what are some of the things that, that have really popped for you and what biggest response? The pizza videos always do super well. That's fun for me too. I like exploring all the different styles. I think I have like 15 pizza videos at this point out of like 102 videos, maybe 101 videos. Um, yeah, those are fun because it's, uh, the framework for what a pizza is is pretty straightforward. So you get to like visit all the variations of dough and sauce and cheese and like they're just fun videos and they're fun for me because they get a lot of views. (laughs) It's never fun when you post a video that no one watches. It's like, oh, that was 30 hours of work and like literally no one cared about it at all. (laughs) Um, Which you've definitely done, right? Yeah. Especially early on, man, you know, you live and die by the, uh, the YouTube analytics, you, you post a video and when you're trying to figure out what your audience wants to see from you slash what the YouTube algorithm wants to show to people, because those are different things. Um, you know, you just try stuff and a lot of it fails and eventually you get to some rhythm. Um, you know, we do a lot of bread videos. I do less now than I did at the beginning. I think 2020 was the year of homemade bread for a lot of people. And there's just like, I don't want to be a bread channel, uh, because the level of bread that I enjoy showing people is pretty deep, a lot of detail. And that's not the same viewer as like the person who wants to come and watch a deep dish pizza video. They're super different. Um, and I think the audience for like the people who would just watch a deep dish pizza video for fun, they're a much larger audience than the people who want to know like what a professional baker knows about baking. You know, maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's just kind of the operating, how I'm operating right now. That makes sense. You kind of have to start with uh, what, where you're getting the biggest response and then, and then kind of test the waters and see what works, what doesn't. Yeah. We just launched a new series like this week called Weeknighting, which is an attempt to give people fun ideas for recipes that they can execute like within 30 or 35 minutes or whatever. Because a lot of the recipes on the channel, in an attempt to get views and to grow the audience, a lot of those videos are like weekend project type stuff where people are watching it more for the entertainment value of like, Oh, let's watch a guy. Like let's live vicariously through a guy who's making something I would never make, you know? Um, and that's like, that's great. Those are fun. I get a lot of joy out of like really exploring that. It's more restaurant food though. If you're talking about an Italian beef that takes you three days to make, you know, like that's not that doable at home. So giving someone a roadmap to something delicious and fun and interesting that's new for them that they could make right now, like that's exciting. And I hope that that does well. Yeah. You brought up two really interesting points I want to explore with you, Brian. One is, one is you said we, so I want to talk about who this we is, (laughs) but the other is, um, you know, that maybe YouTubers, people who are watching YouTube, um, are they, are they looking for more instructional how to's or, you know, versus the food channel? Like, I'm not sure. I don't think I've ever like hit pause on the food channel and like rewound and said, Oh, Oh, how many teaspoons of basil did they put in? Um, yeah, it's an, it's, it's been interesting for me to try and figure that out too. Um, there is a sweet spot between information and, uh, entertainment. And I try and, dial up the information while also keeping it entertaining. That's been a really fun thing to learn how to do. It's super challenging too, because in a attention economy, uh, something on YouTube that prioritizes people's attention over all else and is really good at shaping attention, you have to understand how to do that and how you tell a story of a video, how long you keep something on the screen, all that stuff. Like when you're editing a video, like this is 
this is huge. And like, there's so much um, data available to people who create YouTube content to understand how to make better videos, more engaging videos. And as time's gone on, I've been able to like make them both more educational and more entertaining at the same time, which has been cool. Or at least I think they've gotten better in that way. That's great. No, you you can definitely see that uh, just looking at your channel. It really, um, I think, holds people's attention, and you've got a lot of different kind of offerings. Um, yeah. So, who who do you work with? Who is the we in your in your team? Yeah. So the we is my wife Lauren. She's kind of like my partner on the channel. Um, the way the division of labor works right now is she helps. The ideation phase, she helps me decide what videos to make. And that's like a lot more work than people would think, or at least for us it is because I don't want to have, <laughs> I don't want to have the feeling of having a low performing video. So we think a lot about what videos to make and we have long combos about that. We have meetings about that. Like last weekend, we were like had a little official coffee meeting, like at a cafe where we like sat down for two hours and laid out the next like 12 videos, titles and thumbnail ideas and all that stuff, like how to market the videos on YouTube. So she's a huge part of that. And then I shoot, develop the recipes. She helps taste them, obviously. And then. Uh, I shoot everything, I edit everything, and then she does like what I would consider traditional editing, where she watches the videos to make sure that they're tight and that they're not boring, and that I don't misspell stuff. And then she transcribes the recipes in detail, and she manages everything from that point. Like I make the videos, and then she does, which there's a lot that goes into once a, once a video is just exported. Um, you know, working with a brand, um, making sure that it's like usable for people early on like I would do a lot of chef shorthand stuff and the way I explained things and she's like yeah you get that but you know your sister who is an average home cook doesn't understand that so she helps she's really helped me clarify the message and stuff um so it's a, it's a pretty big collaboration and it's like takes up 75% of the things that we talk about basically maybe more 85 your website is weeds and sardines so I'm curious about that that name yeah, so we initially, the channel had a different name when we first started. It was Weeds and Sardines because the idea was, um, I'm a big home gardener, or at least <laughs> I guess before I had two full-time jobs, I was a big gardener, vegetable gardener, and I wanted to combine cooking and vegetables um, because those are two, the two things that I'm the most passionate about. And the type of cooking that is kind of vegetable-focused, really seasonal, um, that was fun to me. And I think that would show people something different. But initially, like... Or like right when we started making videos, it became pretty obvious that that wasn't going to be really marketable on the platform. And I didn't want to spend a bunch of time making videos that no one watched. So I kind of just pivoted into traditional traditional recipe content. And eventually the name just didn't make sense anymore. But the weeds and sardines was going to be like obviously weeds from the garden. And then sardines like kind of signified like this style of like rustic, vegetable driven, uh, like Mediterranean style food. You know, I don't know if that made sense to anybody else, but to me, you know, it was like just this very romantic idea of like, you know, you're, you're taking your greens out of your garden and putting them on, you know, dressing them up and putting sardines on toast. And that's like your lunch. That's like my favorite meal, like of mm. all time, you know, so mm. whatever it's romantic and it didn't really, didn't really fit the channel anymore. So my name seemed like the best option and not because I'm original, but like that's what all the other food YouTubers do, <laughs> you know, like I hate to say it, but it just seems to make sense to align your brand with your name. Who are some of the, um, you know, we I mentioned the food channel, but there's, you know, other clearly other, other YouTubers or people that you know, are doing you know, lots of different things with food 
and and production um who are people that you grew up watching or looking at or just saying wow you know just being entertained by right yeah well you mentioned anthony bourdain and for me deciding to become a cook was kind of based on that book uh, kitchen confidential i read it when i was 19 and changed careers or i guess 20 changed careers from there even though the book explicitly says do not do that like don't become a chef basically and then in his follow-up book, he says the exact same thing, but more long form. <laughs> um, he was a huge inspiration. I think, and we just watched his, that new documentary that came out and really interesting to see just like what an interesting, um, like beautiful, like, I don't know that I don't have anything profound to say about Anthony Bourdain, but you know, I, he inspired me for sure. Um, and the, the documentary was good. I definitely recommend that. And then as far as like cooking people coming up, it, it was a lot of actual, you know, restaurant chefs that I don't think people would know the name of, but in the food space, uh, Adam Ragusea, I don't know if you've seen any of his videos, but he's an excellent communicator and I've been inspired by him pretty much from the beginning. I stumbled into his content early on and was like, didn't really like at first glance, I was like, why does he have so many subscribers? He just like as a home cook, not really understanding what the deal is with YouTube and how much value you get from just connecting with an audience, you know, cause he was, just, his videos were super lo-fi and just like one angle, you know, kind of in a home kitchen that was a little bit messier than mine is. And, but then like pretty quickly you're like, Oh, these are extremely dense with value. The writing is funny and tight. So I, he probably thinks if he ever saw my videos, he probably would think that I'm ripping his style off in terms of writing. And I kind of am, I'm pretty inspired by him. Um, a lot of people say that my channel is like Josh Weissman's. I try not to do that because I think we have different audiences. Uh, I think his content's great. And when I first started watching YouTube videos, like cooking videos on the internet, clearly I think they're inspiring. It was really awesome to see what he did when he first started, which was like by himself completely define this entire genre that I pretty much exist in now, which is kind of like high production value, um, you know, hard, hard recipe content, you know, not just like five minute dinners or whatever. Um, so, you know, I guess like in that way, the channel is directly inspired. I think our, our kitchens look a lot alike and I get like 10 comments a day about like, why is he cooking in Joshua's kitchen? (laughs) But I really try, like I try not to watch his videos at this point because I don't want there to be any like accidental ripoffs that happen. Like when chef John started food wishes, which I think was even before then there just wasn't episodic recipe content on the platform. So, um, you know, chef John with food, wishes. I know he's really grown on me, man. I gotta say when I first started YouTube, I was just like, dude, this, I cannot stand these videos. I hate them so much because of the way he talks. But like, first of all, he really knows what he's talking about. I can fully endorse Chef John's recipes. And, um, you know, he leans into the style. He doesn't move the camera a lot. It look, and it over time, it's actually gotten looks better. And, uh, yeah, now I have a real soft spot in my heart for Chef John and I really appreciate what he does. Now, don't be afraid. You can just turn the dough out. It's going to be okay. Yeah. Go for it. It's like the <laughs> longest like run on sentence ever. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. It's, it's, no, that's, that's one of my first, yeah, introductions to sourdough is Chef John. Yeah, and he's been doing it for like nine or ten years, which is amazing. But early on, there's like a land grab on these platforms. You know, like you want to be early adopters because you don't have to be. You know, and this is not a dig on Chef John because I, like I said, I think his content's good. But if you're early, you don't have to be as good. You know, as time goes on, it gets way more competitive. Like when I joined YouTube, I'm not saying that like I'm special or better, but like 
you know, there's already 16 good videos on cinnamon rolls made by people trying really, really hard to make a great video. So how do you make the 17th video stand out? Like way harder. I mean, you have to start putting rap music in the background and who, you know, you just have to start getting creative (laughs) and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, the world's a big place. And I think that's the whole point, you know, um, that, that, that people, are looking for creators and it's unique. Your voice is unique. I mean, when I, when I wrote my first book, that's the, that's the thing that goes through any creator's head is um, why would I write this book? There's so many other ones that I would read. Who am I to do this? Right. But you, you have your own book, you have your own style, you have your own way of, of, uh, of uh, stretching dough, which we should really talk about. Let's talk about pizza. Sounds good. Let me ask you about some like basics in your kitchen. Are there some things that you just couldn't do without in your kitchen? Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. Like you've got this, you know, the sturdy spoon is one of your big things. Like like if you know anything, just get a get a good bowl and a sturdy spoon. A lot of these doughs you just can't get through, especially if you're doing a double batch, there's no way you're going to use a sturdy spoon. So the KitchenAid mixer, big deal. But, you know, not everybody has one. So you do a great job talking about the food processor. What are some other things in the kitchen that you just think are just essential things if somebody wants to be into making dough? Yeah, well, like a trusty medium stainless steel bowl as well. You know, If you click through our Amazon affiliate link, I think that's like the number one item people have bought from the channel, one of the number ones. Um, they want that bowl. Yeah, it's just a good, good bowl. You know, it's a good size. Uh, I have several, you know, like that's a restaurant bowl. And I think that's another thing that people see and are like, oh, that looks a little different than just like a giant heavy porcelain bowl. It looks like food production gear, you know, so that's super important. Um, and like a, if you're going to make bread, you know, you have to have a legitimate proofing basket. There's some really cheap ones on the internet that you can get like two for 20 bucks. I think those probably work, but the quality of the fabric that's in the basket is really low and super synthetic and uh eventually it's not it's not going to season right so i'd go with something that's actually made with flax linen invest in a nice proofing basket or a couche you know can i ask you the difference between using the linen and not cuz i think it was actually chef john who's like well if you don't want to use the linen or you don't have one just just do just put some rice flour on the on the on a banneton and that works too yeah you know for me it's like it's 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 like it's like anything if you're really if you enjoy the process of something and you're going to do it often uh, to enjoy it more, you probably need the right tools. You know, like, uh, I've done that with YouTube gear over the last couple of years. Like you start with a kind of a janky setup and then over time you invest into stuff that's not so janky because I spend 50 hours a week editing videos. So I need a really fast computer and I need a comfortable mouse and a big, nice monitor and stuff. But I was editing on like a television screen, you know, <laughs> you know, on like a laptop from 2014 and. Uh, it was good actually the tr- trusty laptop, but you know, over time you're like, okay, I really, really need this video to render faster because like I just need to edit more video. I need to get back at it. And so like, you know, investing in a nice Bannon is kind of like that. If you, if it has a nice flax linen, and I'm not saying you have to spend 60, 70 bucks, you know, you can get a good one for 35, but there's some really cheap trashy stuff out there. Um, and it all works. You know, I, I think that like I'm all for low barriers to entry too. Like the pizza steel is an example. That's an investment. You know, like that's like I think mine was like close to a hundred dollars, maybe eighty five dollars. Really? Um, What's the difference between a couple of uh cookie sheets underneath whatever you're baking? So thermal mass is the biggest thing. The steel holds on to heat in a way more intense way and transfers it really well to the dough. 
cooking pizza in a professional sense in a restaurant, they have these ovens that have decks on the top and bottom. They're heated from the top and bottom. And if it's a really good oven, there's some sort of masonry on the top and hopefully on, or on the bottom and hopefully on the top too. Um, that just makes this intensely hot still air that does not change temperature when you put cold dough in the mix. If you put a, just put it on a sheet tray, all of the stored heat in that sheet tray is just going to go into the bottom of the pizza in the first one second of cooking. And uh, then from that point on, it's just going to be sitting on a tepid, steamy sheet tray and ruin the bottom. Pizza stones mm. work really well, but the steel is like another whole other level than that because it just it gets hotter and holds the heat better than a stone. And the steel goes underneath the 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 rack that you have it on or the pizza goes on the steel. The pizza goes on the steel. And if you want to go really hard, you can set up your oven to kind of mimic a New York style pizza oven. You could never really get your home oven above 550. I don't think that they're allowed to make them hotter than that. But, um, you know, if you do a steel right over the pizza too, that's even better. I've seen people be really successful with that. In general, with dough stuff, like when it comes to gear, I try and like let people know that you can make world class bread with a bowl and a spoon. Truly. That's all you need. And like effort. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to sort of figure out how to get it right. <laughs> there, there are some things to get right. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I was not getting right and really skipping, Brian, was whether I make pizza dough or sourdough is the strengthening phase. Like I really wasn't working with the dough. It wasn't, you're doing a lot of squeezing. There's a lot of references to the wet hand in your videos. People need to just look that up and see it. <laughs> right. So the shaping and the squeezing. Can you talk about why that's so important to the to the dough making process for breads? Yeah. It took me a long time, even as a professional baker, to understand how strong things actually need to be. When I was first getting into bread baking and baking it for the restaurant, the James Beard restaurant I mentioned earlier, Niche, I baked 12 loaves of 50% whole grain sourdough every day. 12, uh, 12, 12 one kilo loaves of that bread. And at the time I was like, yeah, you really want to just develop the minimum amount because it was all hand mixed, 12 kilo batches of dough, all hand mixed, super slow fermented, all sourdough. And, uh, you know, that was like a wrong philosophy as when I got to working in a real actual commercial professional bread bakery, um, you could like, we were mixing doughs three or four times more than I would. And it made better bread. And uh, yeah, so the more strength you can get in there, the better for the most part. I mean, you can definitely over strengthen a dough and then it just doesn't do what you want to do. But the way you build that strength, I think you can be creative. There's a lot of different ways you can do it. You can do it by folding, which is my preferred method. You could do it with mechanical mixing, which is an older, uh, or at least for me would be like um, the traditional way, or at least the modern traditional way, because obviously folding it is way, way more old school. The combination of the huge, two is even better. Well, like I'm just wondering in an industrial sized kitchen, are they're not folding it with their hands? Uh, in our bakery, we, we did. Yeah. We mixed it in a, did. in a big orbital mixer and then, uh, we would fold the dough twice. And, but that was because we were working with very high hydration, naturally leavened breads. There's so many different types of dough, so many styles of fermentation. And there's all of them require different uh, ways of handling, you know, different ways of strengthening. It depends on how you like to work, the constraints of the bakery, what kind of space you have. Really, really big commercial operations definitely don't, but that's a totally different style of bread. Uh, you know, th that's not going to be as handmade. They might be adding extra gluten. They might be adding dough conditioner so that they could beat the hell out of it in the mixer. There's a lot of factors involved. 
Yeah. Yeah. And you recommend a low hydration for, for people starting a sourdough. Yeah. I mean, the, my video, your first sourdough, I think it's 68%, maybe even 67%, which for me is quite dry. Anything below that. And it's, it's not even very pleasurable to eat. It's way easier to make, but it's not, but you have to have water in the bread for it to have the aesthetics of true artisan bread. And that just has to do with the way the starches gelatinize when it's cooking. And it makes a huge difference. And at the bakery, you know, for a just let's call it a country loaf with, you know, five to 10% of whole grain involved in a sourdough, we would push to 80, 82% sometimes. So between 78 and 82, I think, maybe even 84 in the summer, you know, it kind of depends on the time of year and what the flower is doing, but a lot of water and you have something that is like custardy and incredibly luxurious as opposed to like kind of dry and punishing. But yeah, dryer is obviously easier easier on the hands. That's like the biggest part. Other than people figuring out how to get their starter to do what it wants, that's the biggest hurdle. The second would be people getting their hands on the dough. Most people have no idea what to do with a dough that is like above sixty six percent hydration. It just is like an a, an enigma to them. And I want to I want to just ask a couple detail questions here. But like when we're when you're creating starter, when you're doing your own starter, and I have an old one. That I'm going to do a little experiment. I've got this old nasty one, which my understanding is like, as long as there's no like colorful colors, it's all black. Oh yeah, um, hooch. Yeah, that's exactly. And I just dumped it. that out, dumped out most of it, and just started giving it this rocket fuel. This I, I spent 26 bucks on a <laughs> on a bag of five pound bag of flour, ancient grain. Uh, it, it says straight from the Bronze Age to your to your table or something like that. It's like this 18 number 18 sift. I don't think most people can like. I don't even want to spend another twenty six bucks. That's way too much to spend on whole grain rye. Would you agree? I mean, you can find stuff at a Whole Foods or something, right? This was farmers market from an actual mill. Sure. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I, I I guess I don't know if my opinions about sourdough would be controversial, but I'm just going with the wisdom that I've heard from bakers who have been around a long time. The people who are very dead set on their starters having a unique culture. Um, that's a great story, but the starter will be cultured with what is in the air of the room it lives in and the flower that you're giving it almost immediately. So if you have some heirloom sourdough starter from your grandma in Poland from World War II, uh, awesome story, keeping that lineage of this thing alive, awesome. But the le- like, from what I understand, and I could be wrong about this, I, I totally fully admit that, but the, if you were to feed that commodity flour from the United States two times, you've completely changed the profile because you don't have the European flour. You're not in Poland. You're not in Warsaw. Yeah. You know, It's not like DNA. It's not, I mean, this is, these are bacterial colonies. Yeah. And there are some, there is variation in terms of what populates, like bread will taste different in different parts of the world, but only so much. And, um, which I think most people would have a hard time. Like m- most people would be like unable to taste the subtle differences um yeah only there's only so much difference and yeah i would whatever you feed it is going to change it almost immediately or the room that it's in there's different yeasts at 80 degrees than there are at 75 degrees you know what i mean or maybe maybe there's a little bit more variation there but like the when your starter when your starter goes into the fridge a different type of bacteria and yeast become predominant and then to get it back into baking shape you have to feed it a few times for the, like the room temperature yeasts to get rolling again and again anybody who's listening to this take this with a grain of salt i am not a sourdough scientist i've just been doing it for a while and this is the kind of the common wisdom i've picked up in my this is my belief 
<laughs> that, that, that reminds me, Brian. Do you get do you get people that? Uh, I hope you don't get trolls, but like people like who give you a hard time. People who are like really. Oh yeah, a bunch. In the what's some of the weirdest stuff that you've heard that you've had to be like, oh my gosh, do I want to do this? Well, there's like <laughs> always going to be run of the mill random meanness. People just like being mean, and uh, yeah. That's okay. There's been a few like comments on my appearance that those dig dig a little deep, but I just delete those. You know, the only comments I delete are the ones that are just straight up hateful. But yeah, there's people who are very opinionated and will post like three paragraphs or five, six paragraphs about how I'm wrong and what to do different, and then link to other videos that are right. And it's just like, wow, wow. I mean, good for them. That's really spirited. It's a comment for me. It helps with the algorithm, but uh, it's cool to see my audience give those comments thumbs down a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Stand up for you, yeah, yeah. They help out, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's just interesting to me that you would take that much time to tell somebody how wrong they are. Actually, this is actually a funny story because I posted this chili video called "Dope Chili," and it, like the subtitle is like "The Best Chili I Know How to Make," and I say in the introduction, "All of you guys out there, I'm sure that you think you make the best chili in the world." This video is about my chili and I'm going to show you how to make it. And then I look at the comments because all of them are about your chili sucks for these reasons. I always have these secret, like I always put in a little bit of old grandpa's seasoning, you know, like they have like a million of like these anecdotal little secrets that everybody has their top, you know, like favorite things to add to chili. And it's just like every comment proves my point and it's so hilarious. And I guess people who like watch chili videos, uh, or seek them out on the internet are maybe a little bit annoying. <laughs> this is the it's the weird thing about social media, but that right, like that's actually how the channel works is that that it, it creates this, these polarizations and brings out these deep emotions in people. A lot of them the negative, but that's like you said, like that actually gets people more people look at it, and then it's not like you're doing it on purpose, but that's just what happens in the in the channel, and then it's crazy how. In some ways, that's what that's what our interactions are reduced to. You know, it's it's, it's harder to do that when you're face to face with somebody. Yeah, and if I leaned into it too in the videos, there's no doubt that I would be more successful. Like the <clears throat> people share content that makes them angry, or or you know, like if there's anything we've learned from the last like six years of American politics is that like things that make people mad get shared, and. uh I don't even, I, you know, I might even have stole that line from Adam Ragusi. I don't know. I've listened to a couple of podcasts with he's on and he, you know, he has a lot of, since he was in the media, he has a lot of smart things to say about it. But, um, yeah. So if I wanted to like polarize the audience more and say like that recipe really sucks, uh, I'm sure that those videos would get shared. Like that uncle Roger dude who he does a bunch of fried, he like reviews other YouTubers fried rice videos and he's incredibly successful by just talking shit about people's fried rice. Wow. Any uh, holiday plans for the winter holidays coming up as far as special baking things that you do? We'll see. Maybe a few things like maybe a fruit and nut bread would be cool around Christmas time. I'm sure people would be interested in that. Um, and I'm definitely, Fruitcake. I'm going to be doing like a Thanksgiving leftover sandwich. That's going to be like another holiday video. How about fruitcakes? That would be a really, who's doing fruitcake? Because those take a long time. Yeah. I've never made a fruitcake, but there is a thing that it, the Italians make called panettone that is uh, quite a hard thing to make properly. Have you, are you familiar with it? No. It's a really eggy, it's basically make the wettest, eggiest, butteriest brioche dough ever uh, and then pr- 
proof it. I think they, I'm not sure about this. They might proof it upside down. No, they, they hang it upside down after it bakes so it doesn't collapse. Anyways, the crumb on the inside, the holes are huge. There's dried fruit and stuff inside. It's like a sweetened holiday bread. It's really crazy looking. It's like a big, tall, round thing. And uh, once you bake it, you have to hang it upside down so it doesn't collapse. And knowing what I know about brioche, which is a video I just finished, um, it's a pain. Like it's not a fun mm-hmm. bread to make, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't if you're gonna make it real, like with tons of butter in it, it really makes it hard to, uh, way harder than most of the other breads I've done. Like it took me like right. five or six tries to figure it out. Um, but yeah. Anyways, that would be a fun one, and I think people would be well, interested. And, and that's not even dealing with the candy fruit part of it. Like if you're just gonna, you can just buy candied fruit, but if you're gonna make the candy fruit, like that's a whole nother like series. <laughs> yeah, totally. For sure. Uh-huh. And that's something that I'll be interested to figure out. Maybe I'll do that one in December. I don't have all of December's videos lined out yet. So yeah, we'll see. Cool. I made a, uh, I had some cranberries on hand in the freezer and had just went to the orchard, made, wanted to do an apple pie. So did a cranberry apple pie, which to me was like one of my favorite pies is strawberry rhubarb. And it had this sort of similarity to it in the, in the tartness and the sweetness. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Cranberries. Totally in- recommended. Yeah. Cranberries and rhubarb are like on the same spectrum in terms of tartness. Yeah. So throw that in with the apples. You have to do you do a reduction on the stove with the, you know, butter, apples, cran- cranberries and but that super simple to do. Whole cranberries really just they popped in like a couple minutes of yeah. simmering. Well, you both know? of the and the thing that I is interesting to me about that is that both of those fruits have a ton of pectin in them. Um so you get a really well set pie filling. Yes. Which is great. I love that. I don't like yeah. Runny pie fillings. Runny pies. Yeah. That and soupy pizzas. I was going to ask you about that too. Soupy pizzas. We go to this great Italian restaurant. I will not name it because it's so popular in, in our neighborhood. And it's great. They have great food, but I will never order the Neapolitan pizza there because it pretty much comes out with a bowl of water on the top of it. Yeah. Um, it's super soupy. Like, are they just not cooking it hot enough, Brian? It's a fine line. Aesthetically, some people love that. If you go, I'm sure I haven't been to Naples. But, uh, you know, I've looked into it quite a bit and I think some people love like the thing about Buffalo Mots, especially super fresh Buffalo Mots is that it's like very, I want to say watery, but like it has that luxurious, unctuous wetness to it. And, um, the, a pizza like that is designed to be eaten with a knife and fork. It's not my favorite style. That's for sure. If you watch my pizza videos, about Neapolitan, where like I did two videos that were like adjacent to Neapolitan style. You're it, like picking up the slices. Exactly. Yeah. I don't, I don't have any interest in a soupy pizza. Let's be honest, but I do get like why it would be nice for some people. It's a different thing. It's just a different, different thing. thing. Okay. I'll, then I won't criticize it um, anymore, except publicly, like I just did. Uh, so. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're, if you want it that way and you're doing it in balance a little bit, it could be good. If you're under baking your pizza, that's a whole nother thing or using the wrong type of cheese. I've used, uh, just buffalo milk moths that is not designed for pizza. It's like more designed for just eating with salt and olive oil. And yeah, that's a nightmare. You have. You have a floppy thing that is no fun for anyone. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. Really cool speaking with you, Brian Langstrom. Thanks for being on the Soul of Life. Thanks for your time. Hey, I've started a community for Soul of Life fans interested in talking about episodes or getting more information about some of my teaching on IFS, mindfulness, and relationship growth. Head on over to community.souloflifeshow to get access to this group of really cool people just like you who care about the show and want to talk about episodes or or hear more, get access to courses and 
and support each other through life. That's what this is all about. Please leave an iTunes rating for the show and subscribe now wherever you listen to get more soul in your life. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go. I don't have any interest in a soupy pizza. Let's be honest.